0: Hello all, it's Graham. I was not able to participate in the interview uh, with Sandeja Lynch. I was a little bit disappointed about that. Maybe I should say I was a lot disappointed about that. But I wasn't able to participate. So, I wanted to just remind everybody that we have a giveaway going on right now. I'm giving away uh, one of my 6x12 Kraken cameras. Uh, It will be one of the earlier versions of that camera. And and one of the good things that I want to talk about is the fact that I've been doing a lot of small tweaks and revisions on this camera. And so as I do that, I, you know, print out different versions. I, I make up different versions. And that means that the one that I am giving away is actually no longer going to be that original alpha version I'm actually going to give away probably one of the close to final versions. So I will be giving away still one of the 6x12 cameras. Now, um, you will need to supply a lens for yourself. It needs to be uh, a lens that will cover about 4x5 uh, because this um, the the 6x12 frame size is almost a full four x five so you're going to be looking for a four x five lens it needs to be a lens in shutter design and um it needs to actually have a shutter that is either a copal double zero a copal zero or a copal one or it needs to be one of those intermediate sizes uh, in there. So essentially, the camera needs to mount within an M65 helical. And uh, that is another thing that you will need to, pr- uh, to provide yourself. So uh, I'm providing the camera body and a nose cone. You will need to provide a lens, an M65 to M65 uh, helical, and it is the 17 to 31 millimeter travel helical uh and there will be more information up on my website soon on this and uh, i uh, i'm not going to tell you exactly what the url on that is until i have that put together but just keep on listening and i will get that specific information available now you might also want to provide you know like a turret finder Uh, one of those old i use a kmz turret finder and uh, i'm usually using the 50 millimeter or the 35 millimeter uh settings on that you'll probably want to also uh have a um a range finder uh, because this will be an uncoupled range finder now if you're one of those people who's really good at zone focusing that will certainly work for you Um, you can certainly zone focus this thing uh, without a range finder uh but if you want a little bit more control or you just want to second guess yourself uh a rangefinder is a, uh, a a very good piece of kit for this so uh here's what you need to do uh if you are interested in this you need to go to homemadecamera.com/giveaway and fill out the form there now you will also see that I'm giving away in addition I'm giving away five sets of Holga slit masks uh, for Holga cameras. You'll have to provide your own Holga camera, but if you're interested at all in the slit masks, I talked about them a lot about um, you know, four or five months ago, six months ago, that type of thing, uh, before the 6x12 Kraken camera uh, overtook my, my creative abilities uh, in the design area so uh, i'm giving away um five versions or five sets of slit masks um, and then i'm also giving away one of the kraken 6x12 cameras if you are interested in both of those give giveaways you can um, uh, enter uh, once for each don't enter more than once um, because um, uh, I'll, I'll probably throw out your, your offer for you or your entry if you enter more than once. Just enter once for each. You don't need to flood it. You will not increase your your opportunity. You may, in fact, eliminate your opportunity, however I feel on that. So uh, so anyway, it is, once again, Homemade cameras <clears throat> Excuse me. Homemadecamera.com slash giveaway homemadecamera.com slash giveaway and uh, thanks to Sandy Lynch for being our guest this week I can't wait to hear what he had to say and thanks Robbie
1: Well, as, as the other Graham would say, we have a super special guest today, uh, Sandale Lynch, who is one of my kind of idols of camera building and tinkering. Uh, and I've known about his work for quite a while and was really excited to have a chance to talk with him today. Ethan's here and then Graham Young, unfortunately, couldn't be here
2: today. Hello? Hey, are we going <laughs> <laughs> to start? I'm still here. <laughs> okay. Hey, Sandhya, welcome to the Homemade Camera Podcast. Thank you so much for being on.
3: Well, thanks for inviting me. Um, I think you've got a good lineup ahead of you. So, uh, it's, I, yeah, I've been looking forward to it since you mentioned it. Yes. Thanks.
2: Thanks. We're glad to have you. Um, so, let's let's get started. Um How'd you get into photography? Let's let's take it way back. I assume.
3: Yeah, if I if I take it way back, I'm I'm sort of you have memories like in the early in the mid 50s, late 50s. Cameras were things that other people had, and they looked attractive. They looked interesting, but it was always a case of you know, don't touch, you'll break it. And then as you move into the 60s, uh, occasionally I had a box camera to use or a little brownie. Um, with six by six images and that was kind of fun because it made you feel important in a sense to have one of these but it was always other people's and then in 68 I've been looking at stuff and uh, talking to people I I picked up a a 35 mm camera from Japan secondhand Um, now before I tell you what a disappointment that was I should also say But when it comes to influences in the 60s, we had a great tradition of color photography uh, and news stories, photojournalism in the Sunday magazines. And that was something you always look forward to when the newspapers came on the Sunday. You had these glossy magazines full of uh, picture stories. And that was an absolute fascination because that was so much more real to me than the kind of novels and fiction that you otherwise had to look at when you are growing up as a kid. So, you know, there were those influences there through the 60s. But unfortunately, the first camera I bought turned out to be a complete dud. And so it was a a good many years before I, I got another one. In the 70s, I was able to borrow one now and again, and I bought a small Instamatic, took a few shots with that. But when the opportunity came up later, uh, I got myself a Pentax MV, I think, uh, which, which I got in preparation for a, a trip, which I thought would be pretty good to use. And it was. And that camera lasted me for a good many years. So it was 35mm all the way through. Uh, Often just taking snapshots of events or circumstances wherever I found myself, because I was actually moving a lot from place to place, Um, but also taking a lot of shots of uh, other people's sculpture. In fact, at one point, I did a little tour in northern Italy, taking photographs of medieval bronze doors. Uh, Because this was the the relief art was the most fascinating thing for me. So I took a lot of photographs of um, uh, classical Renaissance uh, relief sculpture. And it again continued with just 35 mil the whole time. I only moved into larger formats 20 years ago. Really? No, no, no more than that. So everything you've seen online on my website or things that I post from time to time is all work from the last 20 years.
1: It seems that you and I are on almost exactly the same schedule and probably are similar in age because uh, you're describing a lot of things that I went through too. Yeah. 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 And I feel like there's a, uh, there's a tie in with the, uh, the fact that you were both sculptors and it sounds like you were making art by hand before you were, treating a camera as more than just a recording device
3: oh absolutely absolutely um nick were you into photography from an early time or did it come later for you
1: uh so my dad uh handed me an all-manual camera when i was about 10 or 11 years old and and taught me how to use it um he, he learned photography as a newspaper reporter um So I was introduced to it pretty early, but I used one 35 millimeter all manual camera for, you know, all the way until the year 2000. So (laughs) I completely missed all the, you know, the fancy autofocus and auto exposure and all that stuff completely went past me by for whatever reason until, you know, we were already in the digital age. So now I'm re sort of relearning about all the things i missed because they were too expensive and exotic
3: in those days. absolutely yeah in fact uh, one of the pieces of advice i was given very early on in my teens was always shoot slide film because it's in inverted commas the best right. and it took me many years to realize that that wasn't true
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: and of course the cost of slide film then was was very considerable but you mentioned digital and that brings out a very interesting point because I got my first digital camera when I was living and working in Malaysia in 1999-2000. And that was really intriguing. It was like three megabytes or something, three megapixels. Uh, Very, very small, but very, very handy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was watching the development of these digital cameras and all the technology that was coming online. and I happened in Singapore to run across a photography store that was selling medium format gear because professional photographers were starting to unload it. They were turning to digital and they had these RB67s, these Hasselblads or uh Mamias or Rolliflexes that they were not using anymore because they were moving on to uh, digital work. And that meant there was a new opportunity to pick up these larger format cameras, real quality cameras, at a very advantageous price. And that was a motivator.
2: Hey so I'd like to back it up uh for a second. I've got some notes of things that you've already made me very curious about. Um, what were you doing in
3: Malaysia? Oh, um, when I was about 30, I started teaching English as a foreign language. And that gave me a, a something of a solid career base uh, because it was fun to do. And I m- continued with that for a number of years. But there's, there's one issue about that and that it's in your own home country It's not that easy to get work as an English language teacher. So it was much easier to get work abroad. I uh, had been backwards and forwards on the mainland of Europe a few times um, teaching and otherwise. But in 97, right at the beginning of 97, I was offered work in the Middle East teaching So I went out to uh, some teacher training colleges there and I spent four years there. And as a step up, I moved to Malaysia to work on some uh, multimedia language programs for the web. And then as that fell apart, because these things often happened, I, I moved to Singapore and started teaching there. So, you know, there were my my career basis was following where the jobs were uh, with English language teaching.
1: Uh, this is kind of funny, uh, Sandia, but my one of my younger sisters started out uh, getting a degree in photography and ended up teaching English as a second language for her whole career.
3: <laughs> All right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: She's still doing fate, it.
3: Fate works in strange ways.
2: Okay, yeah, and, it, and so I have one more background question. You mentioned that you had a horrible camera, uh, maybe in the late '50s, which you didn't 60s. name '60s, 60s uh, before your Pentax MV. Yeah. What what was that? What what happened with it?
3: It was it was actually a Kowa, a Kowa uh, 35 mil, and the guy who sold it to me said, in all frankness, he didn't really enjoy using it <laughs> which was like code for this is this is a, a lemon you know you're 16 years old you can have it uh so I, I i bought it from him and it just uh the lenses were not very sharp and it jammed after about 18 months i think and i, I was quite pissed off because a little bit after that i discovered that if i had just waited for say another nine months to get some more money together, I could, I could have bought a Pentax. <laughs> uh, you know, what I bought was that much cheaper uh, that it was that much more unreliable. So there's a little bit of grit in the in my eye over that one. But it 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 meant that I spent more time looking and consciously looking uh, about picture formation and composition. Even without being able to record anything. So, no, that's just the way it goes, you know.
1: Well, I would imagine you were doing uh, you were drawing and that doing that sort of thing. Oh.
3: I was drawing a little, but you know, I'm not very really good at drawing. I can do two-dimensional design, but rendering a three-dimensional figure in two dimensions on paper, i don't rate my own skill very highly i'm i'm not really good enough uh at that yeah it's but
1: really there is hard
3: one thing. yeah sorry
1: oh it's quite hard yeah it takes a lot of yeah. time yeah
3: um th- there is one thing that i do feel which is that my attraction towards black and white and my attraction towards relief sculpture is in some way connected um because Relief sculpture is desperately dependent upon light yep. to show the form. And of course, with black and white photography in comparison with color, it is the again, if you're looking at form, it's actually easier to see in black and white. Uh, black and white emphasizes form, whereas color often does not subdued the form for the sake of the for the chromatic values and so it goes you know i I sort of look at things with a black and white eye sometimes
1: yeah i I feel very strongly the same way the sculpture i make is actually much closer to being a draw to being a rendered drawing than it is to being a traditional uh, full-round sculpture
3: yes yes
1: really connect
2: with that yeah Mm. sunday when did you get into sculpting how long have you been doing that for
3: Again that was in in my 20s and no I sh- I I sh- I tell a lie I mean the real beginning was that I started with the idea of casting because I was fascinated by molten metal So I had these <laughs> you little, and me both Yeah I had these little lead soldiers when I was a kid <laughs> if I kept them they'd be worth quite a lot of money but I melted them all down <laughs> and uh poured them into these plaster moulds, which always exploded because they were always wet when I poured them. Um, but the intrigue about primitive casting and the history of it, if you go back sort of 5,000 years or so, uh, is, is a thing that interests me. And later, I got involved with someone who was working in leaded glass. So she had lots of scraps of lead and tin, for me to play with. And that got me casting again, even even without the thought of what I was going to produce as an item of sculpture. I was fascinated by the casting. And it's simply a case of over time, one thing leads to another. And I happened across an exhibition of cast art medals one time when I was living in Cambridge uh, in the UK. And this absolutely fascinated me. It grabbed my attention very, very strongly because here were these tiny reliefs, uh, the size of a, a pot lid. And there was a picture on both sides, You know, rather like a coin, but much larger than a common coin and much larger than, say, a military medal. No, these were miniature sculptures in relief with two sides. And that tradition really took my interest very strongly Uh, on my website there is a page of of a number of pieces of relief sculpture that i've done over the years and intellectually it is very inspiring and uh, i have always had quite a passion for it so photography in one sense is a substitute for that but I, i i have a very pragmatic attitude towards whatever my next task is going to be it could be sculpture it could be photography it could be camera making
1: Mhm. yeah that sounds very familiar uh, i'm often led into new areas by the being interested in the technology and then and then finding out what it can do
2: yeah yeah i think that's uh something very common to most photographers right uh, a lot of us start out as camera buffs more than photo buffs um but yeah it's it's hard to resist getting interested in pictures if you're interested in machines
3: yes
1: and it's also it to me it seems like an uh a lot of it has to do with the the urge to explore so you find something new and interesting and you want to learn more about it and then it one thing just kind of leads to the next Um,
3: absolutely yeah yeah
1: sort of uh, this sort of fooling around approach to things so
3: i want to get
2: oh
3: sorry go ahead no i was simply going to add in there that it's certainly one of the things uh in the root of my camera tinkering and Mm -hmm. camera making and camera designing it's simply that if i see two pieces of some material or other I want to know if I can put those together. Will they fit together? <laughs> you know, that, that might sound very familiar. Oh uh, yeah. nick in particular, but also now, of course, you too, Ethan, as well, um, because th- th- these these micro technologies, they to be able to work, they have to fit. They have to compact well together.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the advantages of big, bigger
2: formats is that you don't have to get it so accurate. But yeah.
3: Yeah, that's true. Ethan, there was another point you wanted to make?
2: Oh, yeah. So um, I eventually want to get back to cameras, but I've been going through the sculpture section on your website. Um, These are, one, really beautiful, and two, not knowing too much about, um, you know, uh, sculpting myself other than in CAD. Are they clay sculptures that are then cast in... uh, Are you using lost wax?
3: It's a bit of variety because I started with the lost wax casting with pewter. And then at times I would uh, have them cast in bronze by somebody else. Um, But there are some larger pieces there as well, which were plaster or cement, uh, which I used for quite a while um, from working from a clay base. Um, but it's metal. Metals do interest me a bit more. So for the most part, they have been carved and modeled in a wax or a wax clay and then making a two part mold so that a wax can be taken for casting at the foundry.
2: I'm a I'm a real large fan of these uh, asterisks. Asterix and obelix. Uh, oh. Asterix and obliques. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love them. Yeah. Really. They're, they're some of my heroes too. I read all of them in French as part of my uh, language training.
3: <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. I actually picked them up at a secondhand shop uh, last year. Uh, three copies of the original French uh, stories. It was lovely to go through them again. Yeah.
1: I have a huge stack of them. I've, somehow came back to me through my family uh just got them recently they're wonderful there's there these are these pieces that you make the way that they uh are reminiscent of ancient uh coins or ancient objects is is i find it quite powerful i've always been fascinated by history um but not in so much just because it's interesting to know what people did in the past but in a way that i feel very, more and more connected to them the more you learn about people in the past the more familiar they become
2: yes and, and yes. in a
1: way the more uh, unfamiliar the present becomes <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway so the, this connection uh, that you it seems to, that seems like you're intending in this work is i find very affecting uh is that what you have in mind
3: well history is certainly important to me Um, And, you know, many of the pieces do sort of lean into aspects of um, Renaissance tradition largely. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the name of a particular Renaissance uh, sculptor uh, whose name has escaped me. Um, I'm going to have to do the, uh, the, the Google thing.
1: Um, this I, know,
3: is, I know him extremely well. It's just that uh, the sure. the name escapes sometimes. Um, but yeah, this. Um,
1: I'm now. I'm. You've just given me an idea. I'm going to throw it in. Um, this idea of looking back. There's kind of a steampunk side of it all too. That one could imagine reinventing objects as if they had occurred much earlier in time i guess it's sort of a fred flintstone idea (laughs) like what would a car look like in the stone age or what would a camera look like in you know early middle ages it would be a lot of fun to build some guesses at that
3: yes it would it would uh i'm very wary of the word steampunk though strangely enough i um i've never found it particularly attractive because From what I've seen of it and how it how that word has been used over the years, um, it's I've never really understood where it comes from other than as a decorative thing. Um, That's
1: that's what it is. That's exactly what it is, although I think that probably has its origins in some science fiction stories. um,
3: Yes. Yeah.
1: And people are basically uh, just wanting to dress up like the stories. And and that's really where it comes from. Yeah. But there is a but there's a and I often find it annoying, but there's something about uh, appropriating historical materials and styles to and and sort of bringing them back to life that I do think is a, a, a fun idea and appealing. So it's just a question of whether it's done well or not.
3: Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, I you you just reminded me of a portrait of myself that I had done quite recently recently. Um, There was a sculptor in Austria called, I think, France, Messerschmitt, and he created this series of grimacing faces. Mm. And they were bronze and stone and so on. I think there are about 40 of them. Uh, And I wanted to recreate that kind of strength of expression in a portrait that somebody did of me. Using a wet plate, and this was just six months ago, I think. And yeah, I was very happy to do that, and he was fascinated by the idea because he he wasn't aware of the sculptor. So yeah, being able to reach back to things is is very very valuable. I mean, I often reached back to I don't know, Franz House or Donatello in some of my more classical, classically minded pieces.
1: Yeah, I I used to paint a lot and I'd love to again, but I I feel very strongly connected to medieval painting, essentially to painting that happened before the camera obscura started teaching people how to how to make convincing perspective and Mm. ruined everything because I love it when perspective is all wrong.
2: Mm. (laughs) Well, have I got some uh, drawings for you? a
3: (laughs) A sort of ontological perspective where the person's scale depends right. upon their importance to the story uh so if they're what? not really important people you make them small and put them away in the corner
1: perhaps that's why i like it because i've always been a fairly small person myself
3: ah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah i don't
1: mind being ex- enlarged and put in the foreground that's okay
3: <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's this is a whole wealth of of things to draw from it's uh Quite remarkable. Mm-hmm.
2: So I have questions about casting and camera parts. And um, a lot of the, the particular cameras you have on your site, I, I am a really big fan of. I think they're beautiful. But um, before we get there, um, I pulled this away on a tangent. When when you had gotten to buying medium format cameras in Malaysia, probably my guess is somewhere between two thousand. Three in 2006, when all of the um, professional photographers dumped their film gear. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Like, uh, what were what were some of the cameras that you came across in Singapore, and uh, what struck your fancy, and, and what did you like about them?
3: There's, there's a a big looping connection here because if you if you look at the um, the camera with the golden bellows, the Noretta Rail camera. Uh, I have that on my list. Of you questions. have that on your list, yeah. yeah. Uh, the rear of that camera is, of course, a casting which I cast in pewter to marry together the tripod tube and the brass, uh, sorry, the aluminium supports for the uh, rear standard. Now, the thing is, that camera was made for that lens and fitting it together like that. It was just, you know, pieces of a jigsaw, one after the other. So, but it began with the lens and that lens I had, was the first classic piece that I ever bought in Singapore in, yeah, I guess it was 2003 because the guy had it there in the shop and I had just been making uh, a small medium format camera in a, and I thought, well, you know, this lens is definitely different. This looks like a classy lens. Well, of course, it was a one one three five Tessa in a Comper shutter. Um, fairly, fairly ordinary now that I know the full range of lenses that are out there. But at the time, it seemed really special to me. And it's, it has produced one of the most important shots I've ever taken, I feel, uh, so, you know, I was very pleased to get that lens into its own camera uh, and the process of making the camera actually involved a little bit of casting. Uh, I've got a short essay on the website about how that was made. Um, and that, that lens has, has been really quite a beauty, but it it lives on that camera. You know, I never put it on any other camera now.
2: So. On your website, if I'm looking at the right one, the Noretta is like um, you said rail camera, but it looks to me like a sort of handheld four by five.
3: It's a four by five, but it, the the rail itself is a piece of telescopic tripod leg.
2: <laughs> That's so good.
3: Have you got that there?
2: Um, it's uh, it's the little black one. So. On your website, I think it's got a 90 millimeter Schneider Angulon on it.
3: That's that's a different camera then. A
2: different uh, Noretta.
3: Di- different, yes. Um, the 90 millimeter, yeah. The original, the original Noretta was this. It, it's not a proper Italian word. I made it up. It uh-huh. means this little black thing. Uh, but once I'd made one camera with that name, I thought, well, I'll use the same name on another camera even if it's not black. (laughs) There's there's a certain subtlety to that. Um, But on the, I suppose, two thirds of the way down, there is a, um, there is the photo of a tower block just above a beach. And next to that, there is the Noretta rail, which has golden bronze bellows.
2: Sorry, okay, okay. So let, let's, let uh, if you are listening along at home, we haven't done this, and we'll do this again at the end and uh, do this in the show notes. It's sundayalynch.com. It's S-A-N-D-E-H-A-L-Y-N-C-H.com. Sunda, do you have your website pulled up on your end?
3: I do. I have it here, yes.
2: Okay, so the part I'm looking at is under camera work, um, I've been looking at the large format and and this page. But which page are you looking at? So we can okay. all. Um,
3: firstly, I'm referring broadly to the page camaraderie, which is under galleries. Got you. OK, but there's another page as well, which is under photo essays. And that is called recycled parts great now the this particular discussion is illustrated here with under recycled parts because the first one is the noretta rail camera and it shows the process of casting the base onto the tube of the telescopic tripod and that carries the rear standard just sort of grew together out of that
2: so when i was in college these these angle brackets on the noretta with the gold bellows um really remind me of an eight by ten that i built out of you know uh, things that i could find off the shelf and build with a hacksaw and a cordless drill from lowe's or home depot's like our big box. uh
0: fabulous
3: Yeah.
2: construction store but i mean you kind of took that to a whole different amazing level <laughs> at 18 or 19 i was definitely not able to make any castings uh-huh. uh, i still don't know if i could do such a good job at the like this this is amazing i well, have not also, seen this it's this nice page and st- buried in your site
3: it's nice and stable as well so you know it, it works out quite well with the
2: Yeah, mine was the, not
3: Full socket at the front. Ah, well,
2: yeah. And it's wild that you used a tripod leg as a telescoping rail rather than just having things uh, ride on the rail. When when you have it extended all the way, is it still pretty stiff?
3: Oh, yes, it is. It it actually stays very rigid. It's remarkably good like that. You know, the tripod legs, they have a sheath of, plastic inside which adds rigidity especially when it's locked up uh, because you have the two locks there this camera does not extend um a long way but the it's pretty much set up at the infinity position with the rail retracted and then from there of course you go forward
2: but I love that it's like a, a completely novel way of skinning that cat, right? There's so many made like Brendan Barry is making cameras like this out of watermelons, you know? Oh, right. um, yes, and, yes. and I've seen, I've seen so many different ways. In fact, um, so, okay. If you're listening at home, go to com slash photo essays slash slash recycled parts. dot PHP. Um, it was a little buried for me and, and I've been is. through your yeah. website four or five times and I haven't seen this, but it's really worth looking at and, and not something that I can, you know, describe fully. But I mean, I, I noticed that you have a ball head holding the front standard, which yes. is, yeah. it's the second time ever I've seen that design. Um, when my friend Dennis was building his eight by 10, he had like half of a old Linhoff that, that he, bought some uh, Bogan ball heads and mounted it on. I said, Dennis, this is going to be the worst, floppiest camera of all time. And he built it in his beautiful, uh, stiff camera that, that can sort of look around and, and achieve movements that I could never do on a standard yes. field camera. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wonder, you know, Dennis did his like that because he did not yet uh, know how to draft things for the laser cutter to build a standard field camera. It just worked out great like that. Um, I I wonder, you know, how, how much of this is parts you had lying around and how much of it is just extreme cleverness?
3: No, it's parts, parts I have lying around. Thanks for the compliment. But my cleverness showed up more with the first four by five that I built, which was the surveyor, which was actually, I have to say, quite a beautiful folding field camera. Uh, yes. in brass and cherry wood and uh, that was very satisfying to make that was uh, the
2: first camera design i was trying to make when i made those uh 3d printed folding four x five field cameras i came nowhere close
3: <laughs> it's it's tempting of course there's a generational factor that 3d printing 3d designing and 3d printing is much more closer to your home than it is to mine and i'm still holding on to the wood, the brass and so on, uh, which I've always used. Hear, hear. I love
2: it. I think, I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite cameras of all all time is the Deerdorf uh, V8 8 by 10 folding field camera. Um, or, you know, they made them, I think maybe up to 16 by 20. I have an 11 by 14 somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in my shop. Uh, but like, this is totally from that tradition. Like you have made all of the pieces, perfectly uh and Absolutely. and not yeah. um you know n- none of this really looks like off the shelf hardware like i noticed again if you're listening at home cindialynch.com slash camera slash large format php is what we're looking at is uh, the surveyor um it looks to me like you maybe hand cut or milled a lot of like the the knobs on this thing and and all of the swing arms and and I mean the the brass work is incredible. How did you? I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start.
3: Absolutely. Uh, yes, I I the starting point was the thickness of the lengths of strips of brass that I got hold of, and the same with the cherry. I don't have a the kind of milling machine that I can. Uh, no, it's, it's called a. There's another name for it. I, I can't. Well, there's make it thick, just
1: thickness planes and, and, thickness, and, yeah. and
3: yeah, Thickness. I, I can't. I don't have a thicknesser here, so I buy the cut widths that I want. And uh, same with the brass. I went down to indu- an industrial brass supplier. Uh, this, this was, I started in Singapore and I said, right, I want some flat pieces, some angles. And uh, I'd worked that out and I got my shopping list. And from there, everything was cut. Uh, to the shapes that I needed for the arms and the clips and the screw-down knots.
2: Uh, so did you had them cut, or or you went out over oh, the them, saw or something? Yeah,
3: yeah. I, you know, all you need is a vice. So, uh-huh. so this is this
2: is yeah, this
1: is <laughs> flat bar stock. Uh, it is th- flat
3: bar stock. Yes. So
1: you, you don't have as much cutting as you think, and you also used a piece of ang- pieces of angle uh, or channel and cut so they were pre-made. 90 degree bends is that right
3: absolutely if you look at the, the most complex piece might be the clip uh, that at the top of the camera that holds the the back onto the rear standard uh, but really it's, it's an angle piece and you just have to cut away mm-hmm. enough uh, and then a hammer to bend up one flange and then cut your grooves in i i use files you know and hand files are beautiful things i think they are a great way to work um and i think some of my best shaping has been done with a file rather than any other tool same here yeah mm-hmm. uh, i'm sure i'm sure That's i
2: do cool. it even for plastic
3: yeah especially
2: for plastic what do you mean yeah. even <laughs> well they kind of
1: gum the file in a way that i know you need to use that. a coarse bastard file on plastic and aluminum but uh uh, yeah, have a brush handy to keep clearing the teeth. But that's
3: yeah. it. That's it. Yeah, handy thing is also to rub chalk into it first. Mm. Then the the shavings will fall out more easily. Good tip. Yeah, yeah
2: I didn't know that one. Um, so you know, looking at this camera, I think it's of of the nicest. And in the not the noretta, the surveyor is. One of my favorite styles of camera, like a folding four by five field
3: field. Yeah.
2: Um, but there's a lot of them out there. And I got to imagine that, you know, even if your time was worth, let's say, 35 cents an hour, uh, you could have bought, oh, 700 Deer in the time it would have taken you. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Deer Dwarfs are pretty expensive these days. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, th- this is this is a build that must have taken hundreds if not a thousand hours
3: right no uh the surveyor i think i did work it out it was something somewhere between 30 and 60 hours mm-hmm. and i spent something like 100 pounds uh, and of course this is like 15 years ago something like 100 pounds on materials including the bellows that i bought but oh. it was never an intention to uh save money by making my own no that's this a bit is what of a i monster. wanted to get at yeah uh, it's absolutely a matter of there's only one way you can to develop a skill. That is to do it. And so, you know, I, I developed the skill to do it. That was the important thing.
2: Was mm-hmm. was this the most complicated mechanical uh, device you had built up until that point?
3: Uh, yes, yes. The garden camera was complicated but it didn't have anything like the movements that the surveyor has Um, but you know i i I could draw on my past memory of um making wooden door frames and uh, door panels for cupboards or things like that i mean there are always little bits of experience that you can draw on for a particular uh design and i studied photos of the ebony camera as being you know the top shelf to borrow from if i can borrow from anywhere so um, i
2: can't tell you how many hours i've spent on ebay because um ebay product listings have the best photos from all angles of different products that i'm i'm curious about how they work with no intention of buying anything (laughs) (laughs)
3: The one thing that, that differed about the surveyor itself, though, is the back of the surveyor, because um, I, I just had a quick look on eBay uh, for backs because I knew that you know it could be added on separately. And I found a wister back secondhand for peanuts and nobody wanted it. So I took the wister back and that is what is sitting on the back of the surveyor. I was quite pleased with that. It saved me a lot of time to uh, have a piece grafted on as it were Uh but i sold that one and then later made the surveyor two and sold that one and then since then i've made the surveyor three which i still have uh down in the studio down below different designs every time
1: yeah i I really like uh using some ready-made parts partly because it's it saves a lot of time and trouble, but also because there's it's like you can weave a bit of old fashioned stuff, you know, feel and and maybe a bit of history into what you're building with it as Mm -hmm. well.
3: Yeah. Mm. And sometimes you have to turn them upside down. (laughs) And in the um, Surveyor three, the rail is is actually one of those lighting rails that people use for maneuvering their flash guns or something uh, when they're doing product tabletop work but turn it upside down and you've got a rail for a a camera that works perfectly well
2: (laughs) that's great um what how many years in between the surveyor the original and the surveyor three
3: um the easiest way is for me to go back, because if I click on the Surveyor 3, the date it was made was 2005. That was when it was completed, 2005. Uh, The Surveyor 2, uh, that's the wrong one, is down there somewhere. I've almost lost it. Oh, yes, there it is. Uh, The Surveyor 2 was in 2012 so there was quite a bit of time in between and that's partly because uh in that period i had restored a whole plate camera from about 1910 it was a houghton triple victo and it was you know six and a half by eight and a half film size and i was playing with that for quite a few years because while it's whole plate when you can get the film that's great but I also made reduction backs so I could shoot five by seven on it and four by five on it as well and that kept me busy for quite a few years Um, so it was only after I'd sold that one that I really needed to think about making a second surveyor so 2005 was the first one 2012 was the second one and after that had sold the, the most recent one, the one I have now, uh, was four years ago. I made that in 2016.
2: And, and I mean, those are the sort of major uh, majorly complicated uh, view cameras. But it also looks like, you know, um, we'll get into the Afghan box camera later. But, I mean, you've made everything from sort of simpler. I love this 8x10 pinhole camera that you've made to um, looks like at least three uh, four by 5 handheld cameras and kind of everything in between. It, uh, Sandia, do you have any idea how many cameras you've built over the last 20 years or so?
3: No, the reason is I'm actually not very good at counting. And <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to lose count. But the camaraderie page does contain all of them, doesn't include any of the restorations I've done these are just the ones that have been built up and radically modified from whatever they were uh, apart from the very first one I made in Singapore which I've found some of the parts for uh, it was a basically a pinhole box for a Polaroid back but since I got rid of the Polaroid back um, there's not much of that camera left so there's not much to show. But they're they're all pretty much on that page camaraderie, from the earliest to the most recent.
1: There, there's one that catches my eye. It's labeled uh, Voitlander Vag, comma RB sixty so seven. It's yes. a picture number seventy two of seventy six. And I knew you would yes. like that one. Well, <laughs> it looks it looks like so. I have a similar Voitlander on uh, Avus. And it looks like you were able to fit a modern roll film holder onto the thin little tracks that they had for their primitive roll film holders on those early medium format cameras. Is that correct?
3: That is absolutely correct. And I only had to make a a relatively simple modification to the film back holder itself. I didn't have to touch the camera at all. Um, There is a groove that just needs a little bit of widening. And I should mention that this particular roll film back has a broken counter mechanism. So uh, any parts that are there to indicate whether the film is wound on or not, just take them out and fill the gap. It really only required, because this is the 6.5 by 9, the smallest of the VAG cameras, uh, it only required those two grooves. To be cleared out so that it would go down the rail nice and easily.
1: How, how did you cut the grooves?
3: Oh, uh, the, in essence, the groove was there. It needed to be wider, uh, widened. And I had a uh, a jeweler's riffler file that more or less fit in the groove, and I just had to push and push a little bit to get it get the groove wider. I might have used a handsaw as well a little uh, to get mm-hmm. it started. But basically by filing.
1: <clears throat> and then my other question. So was that a, a quarter plate camera originally, uh, so-called?
3: No. So, uh, no. Well, actually, what is what these plate sizes things? it was six and a half by nine. Right. Now, I, it, I believe you said that yours was a nine by 12. Yes. Uh, which is effectively four by five. Right. And, and this is half the size of that
1: but it's but the the uh the, the the clips that they have on it to hold the roll film holder are are pretty close together so i'll have to look at that i guess i could just uh start with a four by five holder and cut it down so that it covers the, yes. the distance
3: yeah yes we would be able to do that yeah. i mean for me it was very worthwhile because i love the format of six by seven uh i mean six by six would probably always be a preference but i prefer six by seven to say six by nine or mm-hmm. six, yeah. six by yeah. seven is very nice
1: yeah same i agree and and so the one other question i have is uh, you said that the uh film advance mechanism is modified was that because you needed to or just because this particular role film holder
3: was defective it was actually defective um I don't know what the original problem was. It may be some little catch under the hood had broken. Um, I had to, it was easiest for me to remove the number dial and simply count using a a waste dud roll of 120 film, simply count uh, the lever actions I needed to go from one to two to three to four and so on and i marked them with uh, some white paint on the top so the frame spacing is not perfect but it's good <laughs>
1: enough right
3: it's good enough
1: right so that was just it was a way to to, to reuse this device rather than throw it away
3: absolutely it, yeah. um yeah. you know i i bought it to play with I didn't know how I was going to use it and so discovering it fitted onto this bible camera was was a joy you know it was, it was really good
2: yeah it's great sunday um we got started at, I had asked about um you discovering that you could buy old film gear in Malaysia uh, around the time of the digital revolution for peanuts and um, Then sort of we we took a left turn where uh, you decided to buy all of of this equipment to make these amazing cameras out of. Did you ever just buy an RB67 or a Hasselblad or a Bronica or, you know, do do you ever bother using uh, off the shelf cameras as as they come?
3: Um, Let me let me stop you on one point, because I've been in Malaysia where in fact that was where i bought the first digital but the camera shop were actually singapore yeah and from that another camera shop in singapore i did buy a hasselblad uh with two lenses and i kept that for quite a few years and that was that was a joy to use i i liked it very much uh i sold it and some years later i bought another hasselblad the rb 67 I've never used myself. Um, again, I have a, a bit of a preference for the square, composing within the square. So I've had the Mamiya 6x6, which I still use. I had a beautiful Rolleiflex uh, at one point and I've done some, did some very nice work with that. Um, one little problem when I came back to Wales is that I found I was only able to find what we call low pay employment so that meant every now and then i would see an opportunity to sell a camera and make some profit on it and that camera would go uh it was it was beneficial to keep the cameras moving in that way but Mm. yes a nice a nice camera in particular the Rolliflex, they're wonderful things to use
1: yep i just had one a relative gave me one recently that i need to get repaired but it's a fabulous thing yeah and i will never and i will never make a device that's that precise (laughs) absolutely (laughs) right will not happen
3: (laughs) absolutely right yeah and in fact you know half the cameras i've built myself uh the quality of the the shots is dependent on the lens and i haven't built that
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
3: or i'm using pinholes and well we know what that implies about sharpness so there are lots of differences possible, and one of the things I love about this kind of um, perspective on photography is simply that it's really inclusive. There are so many different areas you can explore.
1: Yeah, yeah. I still like the simple cameras uh, in terms of operation the best, uh, even if it, even if it slows you down and, and is awkward. It's still it's still where my my interests have stayed
2: so this kind of leads me to a asking a gram question is uh sunday do you build cameras based upon um finding some things that inspire you to build a camera around it say a lens or a film back, or you know a pile of parts or um is it more that you want to take a certain type of picture and you'd like to build a camera uh to suit or um kind of kind of what What is the the genesis of most of your camera builds?
3: Certainly both of those. Because uh, the reason I got into large format was very simply to have the movements so that I could use movements to control and distort the reality in front of me. I have termed it selective defocus. Because I like to be able to uh, shift the front and rear standards, tilt and swing. I would like to be able to shift them enough to hone in on what I feel is the most important aspect of the subject. The image of the tall tower on the beach is a very good example of that, really, because that's only achieved... Um, with the movements of the camera. Yeah,
1: image 47 of 76, Meridian
3: Tower. Mm, Meridian Tower, yeah. And and that's taken with a 135 Tessar. And, yeah, I was very, very happy with that. At the limits of its image circle, as you can see, um, with the slight vignette down at the bottom, but it's basically full frame of 4x5, using that lens. And so, you know, the motivation there with with large format was definitely to get the operational control over perspective through using movements on the standards of the camera. However, when it comes to some of the other cameras, it was a case of, well, can I put a lens on this and also a pinhole? And have them interchangeable as the same camera, well, yeah, it turns out I can do that, or um I've got these pieces of wood. what's the smallest camera I can make for um <laughs> one twenty film, and I had enough wood, so I went away went, went off with it, and to see what I could do, making a very small camera with very little control, pinhole, of course, but um a lot of fun a lot of fun
2: Hey, i want to ask about these handheld four by fives it looks like you've made a couple of them um what what led to that that's the type of camera that i really love i make a few of them uh, i use them pretty often um yeah what what was the yeah. genesis of those
3: yeah that, that, that's kind of interesting because the very first on the camaraderie page is the noretto from 2005 and That was the first one where I built, uh, designed and built a back to hold a four by five film holder. And I I had this sneaking feeling that 90 would be good, both in terms of pinhole distance, but also because I was planning at that time, because I was building, uh, starting to build the surveyor, starting to plan for it. I was planning to get a 90 lens. So The idea behind the Noretta was being able to use both the pinhole and a 90 millimeter lens with no focusing, quite simply uh, a point and shoot with a where the depth of focus would be down to the aperture. So if I throw it down to 32 using my angle on the lens, then well, everything is going to be in focus, isn't it? Uh, pretty much everything is going to be in focus. And then I updated that in what year was that? 2015 with the, the two tone. Yeah,
1: that's, that's a beautiful right. one. I love that one. That's a, I'm looking at it right now. It's a, that's a beautiful camera. And that, is that also fixed focus?
3: It is. It is. Uh, I have a separate um, front piece that I have with a pinhole, but with the 90 on there. It's fixed focus. And so everything from, what, three meters to infinity is in focus if you stop down enough. So it does need a tri- tripod for that. Um, I have used it handheld, but a tripod gives you a greater option, greater stability.
1: I really I love you. I love that 90 millimeter Angulon. That's an exceptional lens.
3: It is, Yes. Yeah. Now, here, of course, there are no movements at all, but you do get, you know, a nice big image with a camera that's easy to carry around.
2: And it's uh, got a left hand grip on it, which is a favorite of Nick's.
3: (laughs) Ah,
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I still don't understand the fixation with
1: uh, handling the lens with your left hand and holding the camera with your right. It seems backwards, but
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, this was this was nice to do. I actually made nine of these in total. I've still got one. Uh, it was the first time I'd worked with maple wood because I'd done all of the previous cameras with um, uh, cherry, well, some lime as well. But uh, this maple was really nice to work with. And it was a nice contrasting color with the cherry in the main frame.
1: You know, I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but I've recently had the brainstorm. I've been doing a lot of uh, hardwood flooring, you know, making floors, and that comes with a beautifully made uh, male-female sliding groove already built into the flooring. And oh, yes. as a raw material for making cameras, it could be very, very handy. Uh,
3: yeah, tongue that... and groove.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Tongue and groove, yeah.
2: Nick, is it maple flooring?
1: Well, I I have done quite a bit of maple. I've also used other uh, materials, but maple's my favorite. You need a few few pieces of maple.
2: (laughs) No, I've got a few. I also really like maple. It's uh, very hard. It's it's almost like a metal to me. And Uh, beautiful. Yeah. Sunday, do you have a favorite wood?
3: Oh, not so much. I mean, in fact... um, I would have said cherry if you'd asked me 10 years ago, but now I'm thinking, well, you know, maple's nice as well, uh, so I don't have any favorites.
1: I think if Uh, you want precision, I would recommend trying ash. It's uh, an incredibly straight straight grain and takes mortises beautifully.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm certainly not not a wood expert, no. So... Sometimes, of course, the more recent cameras, the more recent pinhole cameras, whether they be black or painted cream, um, they are maple or plywood underneath, whatever. Uh, They're just made with whatever comes to hand and then painted afterwards.
1: Yeah, I like that, too.
2: I wind up every maple, or maple, every wood camera that I make is generally birch ply these days just because it cuts nicely on a laser cutter and is available a block and a half away from where I have my laser cutter. That
3: that (laughs) Um, matters. That matters a lot. Yes, yeah.
2: Sandhya, you mentioned that you made nine of these two-tone cameras.
3: I did, yes. Uh, The reason reason was that I had... um, some wood left over from making the surveyor 2 and the the problem with buying cut wood is there are not many suppliers and they have a kind of minimum order idea because the the transport cost is quite high and so you're not going to order some wood just anyhow you need to have a good reason so I had, I had quite a bit of wood left over from the Surveyor 2 and uh, somebody asked me about the design of the Naretta. So I gave them the instructions that I once wrote out and then he came back to me and said you don't think you could build one for me do you? Something I had never considered doing at all. But With a little bit of wood I had left, uh, I thought, well, it could be an excuse for me to buy more timber if I (laughs) planned to make more of them. So uh, I I came to a good arrangement with this guy. I think he was in Florida. Um, And I uh, bought some more wood and started making these. And the trouble was, as soon as I put them online, somebody was like, how much are you selling that for how much are you selling that for so um yeah they all they all went uh quite quickly uh, which was nice which was and, nice
2: and have you ever considered going into uh maybe not full-time but more of a consistent production with with such a product
3: no not at all because it wouldn't be any fun anymore. Yeah, Uh, yeah,
2: don't I know it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you you know what that's like. I mean, you were talking about that very precisely over over this issue of whether to let go the instructions and the files or whether to actually carry on with the reproduction yourself. So you know exactly what's involved there. Uh, It takes away from your inquiry time, your research time, uh and that can remove some of the pleasure of it as well.
2: Have you ever built any other cameras uh sort of for you know for
3: commerce oh no, no, not at all um, you see one of the things over the last ten years, I suppose is that um Having made a few bellows for myself and other people seeing the bellows that I make, uh, I've had a lot of inquiries for bellows. So, you know, a good part of my workspace uh, tends to be for that. Now, I have to clear a lot of stuff out the way if I decide to work on sculpture and uh, wax castings or do woodwork or brass work. It's... um, I don't have all the space I could wish for. So uh, I I, I wouldn't really want to go back into making cameras or or reproducing a number of cameras. No, I just make enough in terms of using up the materials I have left over.
2: It's kind of like if you give a mouse a cookie. I don't know if you know that book, but. You know, if you build one camera, you're going to have some leftovers. So you got to build another camera, but then you got to buy some things and then you're yes. going to have some leftovers from that. So on it's, and so forth until you have four lasagnas in the fridge.
3: <laughs> it's very much like that. Very much like that.
1: I think the answer is to keep building workshops. But, you know, that's what, what Picasso did. He would fill up a studio and when it was chock full, he would just buy another one. <laughs> And leave Absolutely it right. just lock the door and, and leave it all behind. <laughs> <laughs> but there were apparently quite a few of them scattered around when he finally passed away.
3: That's quite an idea. So that explains why he was able to why his estate was able to release so many of them. That's right. Uh, shortly after his death.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He really? just left everything in place once the thing filled up because he never threw anything away. He just yeah. worked until the thing was completely full. It's like kind of a, a pack rat experience.
2: Oh. <laughs> hey, while we're on the topic of workshops, uh, Sunday, where where do you usually work?
3: Well, um, my home my uh, my house i have um dedicated space downstairs and a uh, couple of long benches and tables and so on uh, I, so basically I, w- I work at home
1: yeah same uh, here only i built a pretty big shop next to my house but yeah
2: yeah i have a backyard garage that i work in it's, it's been very pleasant not having all of my soldering equipment and saws and things all over all over the house
3: you don't want all these things in the same place no no yeah
2: well there was a there was a brief six month
1: period when my wife and i were forced to weld in our kitchen
3: (laughs)
2: yeah
1: (laughs) that was a long time ago So, Sande, I I really identify with the way you combine uh, old parts and old things with new work and lovely materials. The whole thing uh, is very inspiring to me because I've been making a lot of cameras uh, in a similar manner for a while, um, but I haven't pushed myself to make them as beautiful as yours, and I think it's a really good idea to do that. It's uh, just partly for its own sake, but also I think... It, it impacts the experience of taking photographs if you're photographing people they're going to judge you by the camera you're pointing at them to a large extent and, and that, so that, can, right. that can have a lot of impact on the way the way it feels to work uh, if, if cameras fun people maybe have more fun with you and that sort of thing
3: I think there's some truth in that and in with if I compare some of my earlier modifications of medium format film cameras with some of the later more recent ones i am actually happier using the pieces that look a little bit neater and they also work a little bit more neatly too and i'm pretty happy with that
1: Mm -hmm. so um, that leads us in another direction which i know uh, ethan is really hoping to talk about uh, it so i think we should start in on talking about the afghan box camera which is it where most people use as a generic term for a camera that you you can develop the uh, the image inside the camera or or you know on the spot uh, in the street um, and i know you've made one but it seems to me a little bit different than a traditional afghan box camera and i think ethan wants to ask questions about that
3: yes ethan you go ahead because you've tell me something a little bit about the ones that you've seen in the past and uh, then we can move into any specifics about this one.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I've actually been interested in this type of camera since, oh, I want to say maybe the year 2000, there was an article in a popular photography, which for the life of me, I can't find, but I, I wish I still had it. Um, And it was about these Cuban street photographers who we're using, you know, what we would call an Afghan box camera or a Cuban Polaroid to shoot portraits of people as souvenirs in Havana. And I just I had never seen anything like it. I must have been like, you know, 14 or 15 years old at the time. And I, I have always wanted to build one. And actually, I've been um, pushing Nick and Graham to build one and trying to get the listeners into building um not necessarily an Afghan box camera, but some, some sort of camera that produces a finished result, like a Polaroid, but not necessarily using instant film or packed film or anything like that. Um, so I, I've been working on a whole bunch of designs. Yours looks to me fairly traditional, but also extremely beautifully built. Um, you know, it's got a big old wood box and maybe part of a folding camera and a giant arm sleeve and the whole top opens up. Um, yeah, I, I sort of wonder, one, when you became uh, aware of this style of camera and, and were you immediately taken with uh, the idea of building one or, or did it grow on you? And then sort of how, how did it come about that you built your own? I, I think it's great.
3: I suppose uh, being involved with internet forums has been has always been a, a great source of information and a source of sharing. And first of all, I was involved with Photonet back in 2002,
2: 2003. Me uh, too. Yeah. Maybe we corresponded back then.
3: Who knows? And then afterwards, there was another one, uh, an offshoot, if you like, called Nelson Photo. A couple of dozen of us started out with uh, C.E. Nelson. uh, And then there were other ones along the way. Now, the first time I came across a mention of an Afghan camera, I honestly don't know when it was. It'd be somewhere between 2005, 2010, I would guess. Because one of the things that happened here, joyfully, really, in, in Wales, is that In 2009, I think it was, or 2010, uh, some people started up a photography gallery in Cardiff. And I used to go down there sort of every month to see the exhibitions, talk to people and so on. And one of the um, volunteers who was working there, she had just finished a a uh, documentary photography course in Newport. Uh, she had seen that I had made quite a lot of wooden stuff. I was going to this gallery quite regularly and a friend there had seen that I had made a lot of cameras and she said um, she's going to go traveling. She's going to go traveling on her bike and she would like to have one of those funny cameras where you develop the print for the person She didn't know what it was called. Uh, And I said, maybe it's one of these. So I did a little bit of research and I sent her the links. And sure enough, this was exactly what she was wanting. But the question was that she was going to be traveling with a bike trailer behind her. And I should add, she's a brilliant long distance cyclist. She did all the UK, all the way up um, Ireland and cycled all the way up to the north of Scotland. Uh, she, she knows her stuff on two legs and two wheels. But weight was going to be a problem. So I looked into the alternatives of the what turned out to be two different kinds of Afghan camera. And this is where Maurizio Zapata was incredibly helpful because he had actually built one of each type for his own work in Sao Paulo, I think, in uh, Brazil. And uh, I figured that, yes, you've got the the more traditional type, which is for paper negatives and paper positives, where you have a, a rack focusing system inside the camera box. That's fine. But it does take up a little extra space compared with having a focusing system that is external by using a bellows mechanism. Because then your camera box, your big box, can be smaller. Uh, There's still enough space for the three or four trays of chemicals that you have inside. Um, But your life gets a little bit easier if you can focus using the bellows. And so I looked into the best kind of camera for her. And, uh, you know, I, I shared... The design with her as as I was coming along and she said, yeah, that's exactly what I want. So uh, it worked out quite well. Now, I never used it. I mean, I built it entirely for her because she wanted it for her travels. Um, but uh, it was it was it was some fun to do and fun to work out. And you'll have seen the photos I put onto the Facebook page of what it looks like on the inside. But the camera is actually complete. Um I could remove the camera from that box, add in one or two parts, and use it as a regular camera again. That's not the plan, but that could be done. It's, it's a complete camera with the bellows and the rail.
1: So I have a question. Uh yeah. does the ground glass go all the way on the other side of the box? Uh or do you, or how do you focus?
3: Oh, you have to um, uh, you have to put your face into the door at the rear and use an arm to reach forward mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. to push and pull the focusing knob. I mean, it is literally it's arm's length. It's it's not not uncomfortable to do that. Uh, you're at arm's length. You just have to develop the technique of bending your arm in the right way.
1: Okay, so I guess what I what I wanted to ask is, is there a ground glass and then you then attach your negative to that glass when you're ready to take the picture? Is that how that works or?
3: Well, I hope that one of those images will have shown that the very first one shows that the camera is inserted into a frame.
2: Yep.
3: Yeah. And the second shot shows that frame leaning back.
2: Yeah, it's on some cabinet hinges. It looks like.
3: Yes, it is. They are cabinet hinges, and basically, your your piece, your sheet of film or your uh, sheet of paper, goes in there, and you simply push the ground glass up against it to take your shot. So the position of the ground glass is there for focusing, and then you move it. You move it back, tilt it back, and you slide your paper negative or your sheet film into the space. So it leans against the ground glass. Is that clear?
2: Great. Yeah, I, I'm looking at the, the photo now. It's, it's very clever. It looks like you were using some sort of a Kodak best pocket or, or um, I'm not exactly sure, early Kodak folder.
3: It is a it is a Kodak and it's one of the um, Bible shape cameras uh, Uh like the Avis or the Voigtlander Vag. Same same boxy design. And this was a Kodak version. I forget the precise name of it, but um, uh, it would have been sort of 1930 or something like that. And it's that square box edge which makes it so very convenient to build into a wood frame.
2: Yeah, it looks like you're using two carriage bolts or or hex bolts that are just (laughs) screwed in from the side, holding it in place.
3: It is just that. It is just that, yes. Right. And then packed with uh, a degree of, um, you know, light insulation to ensure that no light seeps through.
2: And... Okay. Okay. I got to ask about that. What type of uh, what type of light seals do you use there? I think it's something where I have a big roll of fake leather. You know, it's like plasticized on one side, which is nice. Uh, right. is, it, is it spongy? Uh, yeah, just a little bit. The back is like nice and flocked. And it's actually, um, you know, because it's, it's fake, it's all some synthetic material, which is very waterproof.
3: <laughs> oh, right. Well, I mean, that's good. I mean, I use... Uh, velvet ribbon sometimes or uh, felt with a sticky back
2: uh-huh.
3: or um, traditional. what's the other thing? Sponge, camera sponges uh-huh. uh, which you can buy in sheets <clears throat> and which I choose to use depends entirely on whatever friction it's going to be up against. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's going to be held in one place then you know maybe a sticky back's okay but if anything's moving across it sticky back may not be so good because it might pull it away
2: and and so it looks like you built a little paper safe in here it's got a lot of nice little details um how how did your friend uh transport 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 her chemistry on a bicycle with this thing
3: well uh one of the things Maurizio said to me was that when you choose your trays, make sure this, they've got a slightly high side so that the liquids doesn't slop <laughs> about when you move it. But the other thing is you want bottles and a funnel that are easy to pour back into. Yeah. So there's enough gotcha. space within the box to have your three or four chemical bottles standing upright and then pack the space with anything else. And then, of course, when it comes to using it, you take everything out and you pour out the chemistry that you want to use and pour it back in afterwards.
2: Just don't mix your water bottles on your bike rides. Absolutely.
3: Ride. Absolutely. Yeah. Color coding is key.
2: That's great. And and so did your friend take this uh, on on long trips or, or one long trip?
3: Well, I, I hope so, but I... I need to catch up with her. I know that after she went back to France, there were some issues she had to deal with. So she may have put a lot of it on hold for uh, quite a period. Um, I'll have to find out and see see how she got on with it. Because I don't know if she's done one particular tour or used it locally where she lived. She did get in touch with at one point um because there was a problem with the shutter for some reason so uh i sent her another shutter to put in um and i hope that shutter has worked out okay Uh but um i i need to catch up with her and find out
1: this this is i'm sorry this is pretty (laughs) (laughs) good Go, go, i just wanted to say that this is pretty close to where i'm headed with uh i'm trying to build a camera to use a giant lens that i found uh and that needs a long focus you know back distance so the whole box will be taken up i'll end up putting the the uh recording media on at the, the very back of the box and then having the lens all the way at the other end and i'm trying to find a cheap way to set it up and i've decided to put attach the lens to a um I, ha- I have a, an old front standard for 4x5 that, that's big and heavy duty and to use um, the bag bellows yeah, that, that fit it and just cut them in half so that they open up wide enough that they won't get in the way. Um, and, and I only need a, a few inches of focus throw to focus the thing as long as I built the box the right side, size. Yeah. And so that, that's sort of where I'm headed with that.
3: Just curious, what's the length of the lens?
1: It's a 610 millimeter uh, (laughs)
2: Nikkor process lens that weighs three and a half pounds. Um, Nick, I think the focus throw on that thing, you know, is going to be in measured in feet.
1: Oh, I don't think so. I mean, for for what I need. Um, So I don't need it to focus through the, you know, the whole the whole range. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I could do is make the box expandable you know mm-hmm. so just expand it till i'm in the right range and then use yeah. the the bellows for fine focus uh,
3: that's i mean what if I have you're shooting yeah. like close to infinity distances if you're thinking of landscapes then that's fine
1: right and then when i want to use it as a kind of a macro portrait lens i'll just <laughs> basically extend the whole box mm. to get it a lot longer and then do the fine focusing
2: with it with the little bellows yeah yes so this yeah. is something that i've been worried about on the 20 by 24 that i'm building is. Generally, uh, if I'm building uh, folding field cameras, I'd put the rack on the front standard and omit that from the rear on some of my earlier 8x10 prototypes. But I don't think I'm going to be able to reach the front standard from the back. And so I'll either have to have an assistant or come up with some sort of rear fine focus. uh, Well, so sometimes
3: it is down to having an assistant (laughs) but
2: another thing is to design
1: the rail so that uh, the if if it's turned by something like an acme screw thread that can run all the way under the bottom of the camera and you can put a a crank at the back you know so
3: that's true yeah um,
1: there's plenty of ways to make it uh yeah to deal with that problem you might want a rear view mirror though just because you can get in trouble with such a large (laughs) (laughs) large camera
3: are you familiar with uh, a guy called Kurt Moser who's working in the Dolomite mountains in Italy? Yes. And, yeah. yeah he, his camera is what? It's like camera. two foot by four foot.
2: Yeah. It's huge.
3: That really. sounds
1: about right for this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it also gives you a nice roomy place to do your developing. Um, and I'd like <laughs> with this one, I, I'm, I mean, so in theory, this camera would be able to to produce a 40-inch image circle with a macro one-to-one distance from the subject, and that would be super fun. But that's a totally other camera. That's a gigantic camera. Um, And I'd like to make a a sort of in-between more usable size um, for normal photographic paper. I don't know what that would be, but whatever I can settle on. Whatever it focuses at, whatever the image circle is for infinity focus is what I'll base it on, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But it would be nice to set it up as a giant, and I'm thinking I'll just try a cardboard model and 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 see what happens when it's you know a macro, because you could make a full size one to one portrait of a person that would be you know from almost waist up. Uh, that would be pretty amazing.
3: Mm. Yes, I I mean if you have buildings around you, um, outhouses or sheds or whatever, you could uh almost fit the lens because it sounds like it's a big one into the wall of the building and get your subject to move forwards and backwards that's uh, true right. now
1: that you mention it the, the the name outhouse camera has a real ring to it
3: <laughs> i have a feeling
1: it
2: means different uh things across the pond nick
1: right i think in in, in australia they call it a dunny and
3: oh, right, um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Dunny camera
2: right <laughs> hey Sandeya, what is the uh so i've seen um the largest i see on your website besides the afghan box cameras um this handheld 8x10 pinhole yes i i really like this very modern clean design um is that the largest camera you've built or or have you uh it you don't know, grow megalomania once in a while with with large scraps of wood.
3: No, it it, it is uh, the largest I've made, and Ethan, it's entirely your fault.
2: Ah, uh, really?
3: <laughs> yeah. Because uh the work you were doing with Joe Van Cleve on paper negatives uh got me thinking, hey, I've got some plywood. I can put some plywood together to make an eight by ten, and and that's what I've done. It's um It's designed for a single sheet of eight by 10. And I've taken uh, quite a few shots so far, but I have not developed them. I'm collecting them up to try to do some uh, positives Uh and I'll do those all together. But this is, you know, I, I, I got this done sometime in the summertime and then in the autumn I got really slowed up. So it's had some use but very limited so far, but it will be getting more use. And uh, I would never have done it if I hadn't seen the uh, videos about direct positive paper processing that you were working on yourself. Great.
2: Thanks. Yeah, that- uh, I'm glad that's, uh, that's making, making some people make some even more cameras. Um, uh-huh. One thing I, I would suggest is if you're shooting paper positives, Um, I wouldn't shoot a ton of them before developing a few because the exposure is super critical in a way that it isn't on the negative. Um, And so, you know, Joe and I have found um, right now, I think this is a process that lends itself best to an Afghan box camera because, uh, you know, 10 minutes later you see if you have botched things up or not, and, and then you can retry. Inevitably it takes us, you know, two or three shots, uh, to get everything dialed in. Um, but you know, we're, we're hoping that one day we will we'll have it down to a science and be able to go out, shoot some stuff in the field and come home and process it.
3: No, that's all good. And, uh, good advice too. I mean, this is actually the very first time I've gone out with the camera and taken notes on my exposure Great. I never never do that but uh, for these paper sheets I have done um, but you know sometimes things get in the way
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and the shot so cool. that I have accompanying this one uh, of the river you can see it's very high contrast mm-hmm. um, the river Towie number two uh, that was taken on the 8 by 10 that was developed in paper developer and then scanned and inverted so you know that that's a fairly regular process there
1: where are these it's images? it's impressively sharp where are these images you're discussing
3: oh this is on the camaraderie page okay right at the top the lime the big lime camera with a orange nose
2: at the top lime camera that reads to me as white
3: Okay, that's yeah, that's uh, pho- photographing under flash. I
2: see. There
1: you it's, go.
3: It's supposed to be lime, awesome. pale lime. I'm, I'm, am I looking at the right thing?
2: Uh, this it's is got your like website. A yellow guitar pick shaped shutter, and it's. Oh yeah, there it is. It's uh right. It's like a pyramid. Yes, and a level on top.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it.
2: it. Yep. yep. Does this camera have a like a? Does it take film backs, or you just load it? with a single sheet in the
3: dark it's a single sheet so on the back um i I put up a shot of the back onto the facebook page uh and it will show that um it is simply a a, like a cupboard door that Mm. uh, closes and latches and holds it in place um before i do any more paper though i think i'm likely to use up uh, a couple of the sheets of 5 by7 that i have i've made a a card mount with the um with a placer uh, to hold a 5 by7 sheet so I'm, i'll try a couple of um pinhole shots on the 5 by7 using this same camera and if i if i just find it oh yeah there we are
2: I really love the look of this camera. I mean, I love the look of the the uh, uh, the cherry and uh, maple cameras as well. But uh, I think this is—it's very. Uh, what do you say? Uh, like mid-century modern Danish design type of uh, like it's it's real designy, right? You would see it in a design course for sure. There's
1: there's also an association I have. Uh, from being for a while obsessed with boats and wooden boats, traditional mm. boats that work boats were painted and only the toffs had, you know, varnished boats, <laughs> which needed yeah. to be redone every single year <laughs> from top to bottom in order to keep them looking good and prevent them from rotting. But work boats would be painted. And there's a, there I there, I have a, a strong positive association with that kind of approach to using materials.
3: That's nice. That's nice. That's a good point. Yeah. I've just put up a shot um, on to tagged on to my previous post on Facebook Homemade Camera podcast and this shows the back of the camera. The name of the camera is Rana, which is Italian for frog. (laughs) And that's came about because the previous camera I built or was making was the um, froglet. Uh, There are various reasons for that to do with uh, children's programs in the UK from the 60s and 70s. Uh, So the the name is an extension of that. So you'll see there that the backing plate just slams closed and then is latched uh, in place. So I've got a very, very large changing bag that I can put sheets in, in there and take them out. Um, but the next will probably be some 5x7 Japan uh, I think it is. Um, pan 200, maybe. So I should use those sheets before they go far too out of date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have yeah. some uh,
2: Tri-X80, which is just tri that's been left in a hot room for about 15 years oh wow uh, i um i really like that the back of this uses sort of a locking locking latch that you could put like a combination lock on or a, a key lock some sort Absolutely. of padlock <laughs> and not let anybody into your film
3: and funnily enough i mean those those latches and hinges i mean that i just had them in a drawer i mean they needed to be used up so uh
2: but well, I can't think of a better use for them. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. There's uh, that's another kind of appeal of a lot of these uh, cameras that are made up of different found parts is that they have all these built-in associations. Um, there's a there's a kind of a place where craft, invention, and uh, art comes together, and the best word for it that I know is uh, the French term bricolage, which is bricolage, basically yeah, yeah three-dimensional collage you know made with things made of real objects and maybe not uh used in there as they were originally intended but they bring their stories and their associations with them and I, i really like that
3: that's nice that's nice yeah There is a, a point I, I could put forward there because, Nick, I think your experience is a lot broader, but also more specialized than mine, because you do a lot of forging as well, don't you?
1: Yeah, forging is the primary art form that I've worked on for you know more than 30 years, uh, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that, and um, fabrication is a really big part of my work. Not necessarily because I love it, but because in order to make the things I make, um, I have to figure I had to figure out uh, advanced fabrication techniques. And then over time, I slowly came to really love that process as well. So it's like you said earlier, once you you can't really understand something until you do it. Um, And once you do something enough, um, if, if it's working for you, it gets under your skin and then, you know. It becomes part of how you think about everything. So, for instance, forging for me was how I really learned to draw. Uh, I took hundreds of hours of life drawing classes and never really got beyond a certain point. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really get a handle on drawing until I was bending steel to precise shapes. And then all of a sudden, this light bulb went off. And I thought, well, if you can spend an hour on one curve with a piece of metal, then what's your hurry with a pencil? You know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah. And it just mostly comes down to slowing down. Uh, if you slow down slow enough that your brain can keep up with what you're doing, um, you uh, you you do much better work, and and that's a big part of it. I'm sorry, you you asked a question and I kind of rambled off. Um,
3: no, I mean you you're going in the right direction uh, because actually this what you said about life drawing triggered a thought uh, of what I read about the American sculptor David Smith many years ago. That even though he worked in steel, life drawing was still an important part of his practice.
1: Yes, the man who taught me to forge uh, was primarily uh, a graphic artist and he he felt that you had to be able to draw in order to make make anything. He thought that yes. was the pr- primary thing. And I think there is a sense that it's true because for me anyway, drawing is more about exploring and understanding structure and light. And it's, so it's a really first and foremost, it's an observation tool. It's a tool for understanding. So if you can translate three dimensions into two, and then back again, you understand the 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 thing that you're that you're um, trying to you know make or or reproduce or understand. And it works both ways. Once you learn how to make something, then you start to be able to draw it. Um, and, and there's this back and forth between those two realms that it, I think is really important to, uh, to uh, learning how to how to invent things or make create new ideas and that sort of thing
3: i agree because uh sculpture inevitably involves the depth of the surface that you're working on uh in the sense that you, you, when you when you look at something just using your eyes it's effectively two dimensionals in front of you but uh, once you feel it with your hands You get the sense of the depth, the of the depth of that structure. And uh, it's that constant transference between the physical and the mental image that you have. So, yeah, these things all all help each other to to gain an understanding of the shapes that you're working with, the shapes that you want to produce.
1: Yeah, it's 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 very true. And. I haven't done much uh, casting, but I really would like to fool around with it some more. And I think, Ethan, you would really get a kick out of it. Uh, and it occurs to me right away that you might take a, a sort of backward approach and create something, uh, say, out of plastic with your machinery, and then make a mold from that and then pour in molten metal. And it that could be a really interesting approach. I've seen similar things done in, in modern foundries. Um, and... Uh, for instance, aluminum, it, you can melt with very low amounts of energy and, you know, very simple tools. Um, it's re- quite easy to work with.
2: Yeah, so that's actually something that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently. Um, so, one, I got this new resin printer, which is not a thermoplastic, which means that I can, because it's chemically set, I can get a resin that will hold up to five, 600 degrees C, which means I can cast, you know, at least pewter, maybe you know, maybe lead, I don't think, aluminum in it. Um, But also, um, I've just been thinking about resin casting, um, you know, printing out a part and then using a plaster mold or a silicon mold to pour solid epoxy pieces for making things like gears, but 200 of them at a time, rather than printing them out and checking their tolerances. Um, I also have a friend down at the Makerspace who has been melting scrap metals into little billets in whatever shape, muffin tins he can come up with. So he's got a lot of like aluminum ingots in the shape of a cactus or like a princess. Um, and I've given him a bunch of my misprinted parts uh, to try doing like, it's called lost PLA, which is basically lost wax <laughs> you burn out the plastic. Ah, um, so he might make some, um, you know, uh, misprinted camera parts out of aluminum <laughs> to see if it works. But
3: So tell um, me, does um, uh, because of what I was wondering about was the fact that when you're 3D printing, you're using a plastic of some sort, and I don't know how well they would burn out of, say, a plaster or uh, sure. other kind of mold. But the PLA, does that burn out? Does it burn away?
2: Yeah, yeah. So right. um, there are different ways of doing this right and there's um i think 3d printable waxes in fact but um basically pla is the easiest to work with because it has the lowest melting temperature um, and it's basically corn oil or you know sugar oil um and it it burns out pretty well um that being said i have not done it and i'm not sure um you know if I don't know if you want to burn it out or gently melt it out. Uh, I have a feeling, given how my nozzles clog sometimes if the temperature is too hot, that if you burn it out, you might create some carbon that's just going to you know, create mold defects. Then again, you know, the detail of a printer that's printing PLA is something like a third of a millimeter. Or so it's not super precise anyway. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think Quiet. I would use lost PLA to cast small gears, but, uh, camera grips for sure. Uh, so what about instead of that, what about making your 3d
1: printed mold be a mold to receive wax and then go to traditional lost wax or ceramic shell? In other words, make the mold for the wax yep. and, yeah. and, and, uh, and you know, have you at all looked into ceramic shell casting?
2: um i don't think i know it by that name but it uh it's, i have so we basically some... re- repeatedly dip your
1: your uh your uh pattern in i see in a ceramic material like and... making
2: a wax hand at the at the fair
1: yeah and the, but the ceramic shell itself after you burned out to do the lost wax burnout that shell uh, is the f- final mold and it's extremely forgiving and you don't need a lot of vents and sprues. You don't need a lot of technical skill Mm -hmm. and it reproduces very fine detail. Um, So it's a, you know, that's a fancy version. Um, And then you could also go in the other direction. There's low tech casting that I'm fascinated by from traditional African sculpture where they would use a ceramic, uh, a refractory material to build the the basic form, say of a head or a figure or whatever they're going to make. And then they would coat it with a very thin coat of wax, and uh, cover it, and, and then build a mold around that. Burn away that wax, and pour in the bronze. But the key difference is that they leave the refractory core in place, mm. yep. and it allows you to pour exquisitely beautiful modeled sculpture because you you can hand adjust the wax on the surface before you create the mold. And, and but it can be very very thin and delicate, and it, so it's, it was developed as a way to save money because it was a long you know it was a long way to haul the trading bronze to some Central African country. They didn't want to spend a lot of money on the material, and so the the refractory core supports the metal and, and makes it you know strong and sturdy and easy to handle uh, with a very small amount of precious metal.
3: You'll it, be familiar, Nick, with the uh, 18th and 19th century bronze castings from benin
1: yeah that's what i'm talking about
3: yes absolutely yeah. brilliant they really are brilliant and uh, they were quite a a stimulus for me when i was first researching uh years ago how to do any kind of relief at all they were the most beautiful works i, I came across
1: yeah i i ran into them at the uh rockefeller wing of the metropolitan museum of of art in new york and they were just so so spectacularly beautiful that i had to read the fine print on the on the cards that went with them and learn more about it anyway so that's a very efficient uh, way to make one at a time it's it's uh, you're not going to it's not for multiples um but it's if, if you want to make something really really lovely uh, it's a good approach
3: yeah Yep. Yeah.
1: i think cast parts for cameras are are uh, definitely something to pursue um I, I definitely would like to fool around with that a little more. There's some uh, tr- tradition of backyard foundries in England, and I have some of the early books on do-it-yourself foundry work uh, produced by some English craftspeople.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, some- know, I know a number of young people who are doing that themselves, and uh, there are a number of uh, either small collectives or individuals who are beginning to do their own artwork casting it themselves because they've got you know space and farmland or something um or back lots in the city maybe and because of ceramic shell largely because of the development of ceramic shell over the last 30 years they they are producing fabulous work quite easily uh it is is going very well for them you know you need a ga- couple of gas bottles and uh, the ceramic shell materials, and you've got a, you've got your own foundry. Well, you need the protective clothing as well, but you, you know, <laughs> the barriers to entry are not as great as they used to be.
2: No that, that's that's definitely true. Sandia, do you do any of your own casting or or you send these out to a foundry?
3: I used to do uh, a lot of my own using pewter. But I never used any high-temperature metals. Um, I mean, pewter melts. melts, It's uh, 120 degrees or something like that. I forget. Um, Because that's easy to do in the home. But more recently, uh, any of the bronze casting, I have sent those out to foundries to do them for me. Again, 30 years ago, I could not have afforded that. Now, it's a lot easier the prices are more reasonable for bronze casting
1: yeah there's more small foundries i have friends who who run their own foundry and and uh it certainly can be done yeah but for aluminum that's i think within reach um that's it's only about 1200 degrees um pretty pretty straightforward Uh, now we've been talking about these fancy molds then there's also traditional sand molds and there's there's a cheat for that um it takes real experience to make a good mold with damp green sand. That's the traditional way, but there's a process called furam. Furum, well, it's a I can't pronounce it, but it's a it's a resin uh, mixture, a two part resin that you just simply mix with your foundry sand, and it makes it set up hard enough um, to make a sturdy mold that any any incompetent amateur can can huh. pour as even molten iron. I can take you know as much temperature as you can throw at it. Um, so very easy to work with something like aluminum with it. And you, you get a little more texture in your finished product. Um,
3: I think I think that that's uh, technique making, uh, if you like, plates or bricks of, of that material is a technique that's been done at an art college fairly near to me where I, I went to a conference a couple of years ago and on my page of sculpture, the second uh, medal from the top. It says alive that is actually cast iron and it was reverse carved into uh, a plate. Um, The rear of the plates had all been prepared in advance and we were able to just carve into um, the front face of the plate. And then groups of them were, were cast together in molten iron and it's, it's rather wonderful material to work with
1: yeah it is wild and the resin bonded sam all you really need is like an old cement mixer and you know <laughs> buy the right chemicals and in, in foundry sand you you mix it up in the cement mixer and you know make simple wooden box molds and yep. it it's often a simply a two-part mold that you can take your positive and just literally press it into the stuff and press the top piece down and let it let it harden up and then take it apart. You've got your two part mold and you can get more complicated than that, of course. um, But it usually pays with this type of work to make things out of more than one piece. The idea of making monolithic metal sculpture uh, from casting, it just makes things harder and harder. Um, That's what the big companies do. They'll make a million parts and weld them together. Um, yeah. Rather than dealing with you know one monolithic crazy thing like when uh, Benvenuto Cellini was famous for uh-huh. some giant horseman sculpture that he made that was so huge that he used up his entire supply of metal and ended up having to throw all his his family dinnerware into the to finish the pour because <laughs> he wouldn't have succeeded and he couldn't afford to do it twice. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's better to mix things out of smaller parts when you can.
3: Yeah.
2: Hey, do you guys have any plans, either of you, to cast some cameras or camera parts? Well, I didn't until this conversation.
3: <laughs> and I've already cast one camera part already, which we the, discussed the rail. earlier.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The uh,
3: But I have no plans to do any others. I mean, this, this is the thing. I don't know what I'm going to do next in terms of the next camera. Um but when it happens i could use a range of techniques that i've picked up over the years
1: so i have uh, i have been wanting to make a steel camera for a while and i finally thought of a reason to make one <laughs> which is i want to make a camera that is designed to be submerged in a shallow stream or river pointing up through the through the water surface um so it has to be heavy and waterproof uh, and it could be a very simple camera but i'd like to put a decent lens uh, behind a waterproof Window, so that it will be heavy. It'll sink to the bottom and and sit perfectly still in the current, and allow the uh, water to become the the filter or lens for for the image. Wow. So there's an excuse to use welding (laughs) to make a camera. Yeah.
2: Sunday, do you do you do any welding?
3: I I don't. I I've done bits in the past. Uh, silver solder brazing, um, but I there are there are a lot of you know the heavier materials that I've never worked with, um, and so I don't I don't use heat very much. Um, I've had to do a few parts in in metal here and there for both the first surveyor and the second one, but it's not um, it doesn't have the same appeal um, and. Really, I'd have to learn a lot more to become comfortable with with doing that in whatever working space I've got.
1: Well, it's a fantastic technique, but welding is really overkill for the little tiny small parts that you need. <laughs> and yeah. also it makes for a heavy camera uh, as well.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, jewelers, technique, jewelers and clockmakers have a lot to teach us. Um, And one of the people, one of my apprentices in in our shop, well, she's not an apprentice. She's extremely skilled metal worker, but uh, she has a lot of background in jewelry. And I think it's time for me to start getting her to teach me uh, things that she knows about working with small, uh, small sized objects and brazing and soldering and all of those techniques that I, I could certainly know, learn
2: a lot more about.
3: That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Hey, speaking of that, um, Sunday, I do you have some, some skills that you would like to learn or uh, you know, processes that you'd be interested in becoming more familiar with, uh, either for camera making or sculpture in the future.
3: Um, to be honest, no, because as far as sculpture is concerned, what I've learned is that sometimes it's best to pass the work on to other people to do it for you. And as far as making cameras is concerned, um, I I don't to be honest, I I have moved on from one camera to the next so much over the last five years that I've spent much less time shooting, and I really would prefer to spend more time shooting <laughs> than making or fiddling.
1: Yep, that's always the trade-off.
3: Yep, to be honest, there's one there's one camera that I first made in 2003 and I only got around to using it last year. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what camera that, was that? That's quite a long
3: time. I, I wasn't confident that it was going to work out, but somewhere online there was the discussion about using long focal length of pinhole. And I, I remembered that my original black box of 90 millimeters was, also had an extension tube for the front, and so I I named it the Noretta 200 because it has a it's a pinhole with a focal length of 200 millimeters, I and so finally Facebook. getting round to using it was quite an achievement.
2: Uh, yeah, I've I- become <laughs> interested in pinhole telescopes of late. maybe maybe another (laughs) conversation for another time it's hard hard for me to conceive of that we're looking at the sun oh
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) that makes sense we had a wonderful trip to the uh the last we had a big close range uh solar eclipse recently here and uh i went to the beach with a group of people and they had made all sorts of special contrivances for viewing the eclipse um but i had had thought ahead of time that I would rather take pictures of the people and their gadgets than yes. of the eclipse itself. <laughs> no. And so I loaded up a whole bunch of cameras and just stood there taking photograph after photograph of my friends and their contraptions. And it was a lot of fun. I was amazed though, because I was shooting with all these simple cameras. I was using a light meter the whole time and I was really uh, impressed with how dark it got. It, it was oh, yes. many, yeah. many, many stops. It was, I had to keep checking, checking, checking the whole time in order to get good exposures
3: it's quite odd because your eyes adapt your eyes mm-hmm. get used to it you you don't realize how dark it's getting but the light meter tells you the truth of that
1: yeah and also there was a color shift uh, yes that <laughs> was pretty dramatic too yeah
3: no okay. that's why my, my outcome for uh 2020 is really to get out and shoot a bit more And I have a particular interest in continuing shooting the local river that I started last year. And uh, the river is not terribly long. It's maybe 20 miles, but, you know, rivers meander a lot. So uh, and this one has a lot of tributaries going down into it. So there's a lot of ground to cover if I uh, keep shooting the river to find the interesting bits of uh, foliage and greenery and stones and water. All the way up the length of it, from so the I, mountain to the sea.
1: I photograph a water edge a lot, and I love it. Uh, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. I'm kind of curious, since you're going to be doing more shooting and less camera making, um, where what camera or cameras are you drawn to for that type of work? So for, for photographing the, time, the water, especially.
3: The last time I went, went up to the mountain, fairly close to the source. I mean, we call them mountains. They're, they're sort of big hills. Uh, I, I took a, a carrier bag with four different cameras with me. Um, one with a lens, the Noretta Rail camera. I took the Noretta 200 and one of the small 6x6 six six ones as well. Um, because the thing is, if you if you're in a place that looks interesting and you're going to sit there for half an hour, maybe while well, the light is good. When you put your mind into the capacity of each camera, you can use all of them. You can use all <laughs> of them. <Yeah. laughs>
1: well, I absolutely agree with that. And i <clears throat> that's part of the attraction for um, all this tinkering that we do. But I yeah. guess what I'm asking has to do with water, especially because there's sort of two styles of water photography. One is the fast shutter speed where you see the shapes of the water. or 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 at least a moderately fast shutter speed and the other of course is the long long exposure where it all turns into a sea of milk and they're very very different um and they put different constraints on you um but where do you where's your preference
3: fall well a a little bit between the two and the 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 slow moving creamy silk i'm i've I've done a bit of that in the past but i'm really only going to do that if the Landscape warrants it mm-hmm. uh, you know whatever rocks there are there they've they're, they're the thing that have got to make it worthwhile um, for the most part it is the most interesting th- thing for me has been the greenery around uh, the edges of the river because it creates a corridor with its own microclimate um, yeah. The water itself may be just smooth and free flowing, um, but the it's really about the light and the foliage that uh, the shape of the landscape that makes it interesting. Um, If I get out into mountain streams, then I will look closely at the water rushing over the rocks and then I, I might take some fast or some slow uh just depending on what i happen to have with me because Mm -hmm. it's not just the camera it's also the you know the the speed of the film you've got and um the light on that day
1: yeah so i find that very often i I care about reflections and i care about the gestures that are made by the water if there's any current or or rippling and so Mm -hmm. those things not necessarily a very fast shutter speed, but enough that you can still see what's going on uh, really appeals to me, <clears throat> and so that can really kind of drive what you're doing. Um, yeah, it's obviously not you know paper negative territory. You've got to have some speed and, and uh, mm. prism- yeah. I found
3: a, a couple of times that one t- one tenth or one twentieth of a second is actually pretty nice if the speed of the water's right, because it's you, you're sort of catching it halfway if you will um a leap of water will go some distance but it it won't you'll be catching it in midair as it were mm-hmm. that's really
1: nice. yeah i like that too it you you get a little bit of feeling of motion um and yeah. direction and directionality um it's not that it's not that impossible like bullet going through the apple thing where <laughs> you see something you're not the human eye can't ever see, can't see.
3: yes
1: yeah yeah yeah, that that I and that also is appealing to me because one twentieth to a tenth of a second is within easy uh, range of, of a homemade shutter, like yeah. <laughs> a pretty crude shutter on a large scale. Uh, say, for a, say for a giant six hundred and ten millimeter lens, for instance. Yes, just <laughs> could, a guillotine could, shutter will, right. will do
3: that very nicely. Right.
1: And that's probably what's yes, and that I that
3: thing of of having a little bit of movement mm-hmm. uh, at that speed, which is which is nice to capture.
2: Yeah. Hey, Sandia, have you made any gu- guillotine shutters before?
3: No, I haven't. Um, me, me neither, sometimes...
2: but I would like to. <laughs> I think I think that's the thing to do for this big giant lens. I've spent two weeks drafting a Copal style shutter for big giant lenses. I'm not about to give up yet, but I'll probably get to giving All up right. on. <clears> when throat> you, throat> when, throat> you throat> when you when
1: you punch when you punch print, will you hit two, please? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
2: <laughs>
3: You know the old uh, Thornton-Picard roller-blind shutters? Yeah. Effectively a guillotine on a spring using a fabric um, shutter curtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would, not you know, in terms of the technology required to create them, it, it was you know, 150 years ago, roughly, and they were, they were pretty good, pretty effective.
1: Yeah, the speed graphic is not that part far behind either um,
2: I've, I've taken one apart and they're yeah you know for that way. matter uh the leica shutter or any of the slr shutters are not that much further from a speed graphic <laughs>
3: if, if yes, we're exactly. going down this path <laughs> you've got you've got two curtains instead of one
1: right yeah well i i I'm uh I'm going to be my next project. We'll sort of skip to the end of the show for one moment. Is mm. t- to convert a baby speed graphic that I came up with. I found one that had missing parts, so it was really cheap. And oh nice! I want to cut the front off, take out the the innards to use for some other camera. Uh, but it it then has a, such a short uh distance between the front and the ground glass that I can put any of the modern system lenses like Mamiya six four five or Pentax or any of those. Uh, just put a basically a lens board with a, um, a bayonet mount for whatever lens and make a board that puts that the right distance from the back of the camera and I'll basically I'll have a universal medium format camera that would take any system lens uh, <laughs> and a shutter and I think that could be super useful because I love a lot of those lenses but the cameras are infernally complicated and they break down and they cause trouble and you know they distract me with all their special features and I just had one fail on me when I went on a trip it was a Mamiya 645 and it completely refused to advance the film and wouldn't cooperate and it was very disappointing <laughs> but yeah, there's nothing wrong with the lenses
2: wasting your time building anything smaller than will fit on the back of your 600 millimeter lens <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have a wheelbarrow attached well, I'm not interested I'm,
1: no, the reason is because I do still like hiking in the mountains, and there's
2: a limit to what I'm willing to
1: push up a mountainside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 If you want to, if you want to pull my rickshaw for me, then yeah.
3: No, That's but cool. I would like
2: to go hiking the I time the am there. Yeah, let's do that. I, I want to see the Elwha Valley. It's but somewhere. anyway, yeah, it's a great place. <laughs>
1: So uh, this has been a really great discussion. and I really don't want to stop, but I think we're out of time. Um, and we've covered a lot of what we hope to cover, at least, you know, started talking about these things. But um, I hope we get another chance to talk. Uh, I, I really love the way Sandia's uh, cameras are put together and, and the way they roll into making images um so they're not just pretty cameras but they they're effective tools um they really appeal to me and have got me all excited about getting back to work on some of my own projects um so what are you are is there something that um you're looking forward to building next or a project i know you want to photograph the river um but is there is there another camera in the works
3: there is no other camera in the works at the moment i've got to get to grips with the cameras I have and the new technique with paper negatives uh, using larger size.
2: So I'm really excited for that.
3: I, um, I am looking forward to that. And the, the other thing is getting out more as you know, we've just come out of January and the light is starting to come back. We've got a terrible storm at the moment, but um, as we head towards March and April, I'm more excited to be getting out of the workshop than staying in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that over the time, those times when I am in the workshop, I'll be doing work for other people, Uh, you know, sometimes little repairs and servicing, uh, sometimes making a few bellows for people uh, because that, you know, it's it's kind of constant. So I'm going to be maximizing my time outside of the studio.
1: Yeah, so you made a pair of bellows for me that I that worked really well um, to to replace the bad bellows in an Agfa uh, folding camera that I have. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're really excellent. It, it, it's obviously you've made quite a few of them before.
3: Yes, I have. Yes, yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. Um... Sandia, is, how, how can people find you on the
3: internet? Um, and your bellows-making business. Yeah, no, the, the, the first clue is just uh, the spelling of my name. Uh, you, you read it out earlier, you spelled it out, S-A-N-D-E-H-A-L-Y-N-C-H. And people will find my website on the web or they, because it's simply sandialynch.com or they will find that same username on Flickr, on Instagram, and on Facebook as well. And um, Flickr I use for dumping photographs, really. The Instagram account is a little more curated with things that are interesting, perhaps. But the fundamental is always my own website, which has collections of images from over the years, uh, some short essays and um, other details about my work. So And beautiful can look sculpture at my and works.
2: cameras. And the bellows Sorry? making. And beautiful sculptures and cameras and a section on making bellows. <laughs> all of those yes. things I think our listeners would would love to check out.
3: Yes, they're all there on on my website. And if my website is ever down, I've got a WordPress site which is like a, a mirror of most of the same uh, materials
1: sounds useful all, all right. right so that's the contact information and uh, anything else um, people know how to find us you want to thank Robbie yeah Robbie Cribs wrote and put uh, created the music that we use throughout our show thanks Robbie thanks Robbie
3: I look forward to that